All right. Hi, I'm Char Sewell, and it is my privilege to read Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 to you this morning. It says this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right. Good morning, everyone. Wow, I have to follow Rob. Okay. Whew, as if there wasn't enough pressure. Thanks, Rob. No, for, uh, thank you very much, Rob, for all your service. We... Yeah, we will miss you, but uh, what a great thing to, uh, to be called to do. All right, well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is John Clements. I do some stuff around here from time to time. Uh, I think my most recent title is Director of Outreach, so that's the one we'll go with today. Uh, I'm subbing in for James this morning. Uh, if you uh, don't know, um, James lost his father about a week and a half ago, so uh, the staff has given him some time to uh, spend with his family as opposed to uh, prepping for sermons. So Dave, uh, we had stepped up last week. I'm here this week. Someone else will be around uh, next week, and then we'll be back to him. So anyway, please do pray for the Lund family. It's a hard thing to go through, and uh, I would say pray that they grieve well. Pray that the Spirit can, can work in their lives in that way. Um, so we're actually continuing, though, in our current sermon series through the book of Ephesians, and this week we're right in the middle of chapter one. Uh, so Shar, thank you for, where'd she go? No, she left too. Sure, there she is. Thank you for reading that. Great job. Um, so up to this point in the book, up to about the middle of chapter 1, uh, Paul has been writing what you might call an extended introduction to his letter. And in fact, the opening two chapters of Ephesians describe the new life that God has given us in Christ. And Paul divides this section into two halves. And the first consists of praise, and the second consists of prayer. And so in this praise half, which is the first half we've been looking at for the past several weeks, uh, Paul praises God that, that um, he has blessed the Ephesians in Christ in every spiritual blessing. And if you want to get caught up with that, you can always check out our YouTube or Facebook pages. Uh, we have the recordings of the live streams. You can go back and listen to previous sermons if you've missed them uh, to kind of get caught up. Uh, you can just search for Northview Community Church on either platform, YouTube, Facebook, it'll pop up, and you can do that. But today, we're going to start the second half, or the prayer half of this introduction. Uh, and in this half, Paul, he asks God to open the eyes of the Ephesians so that they might grasp the fullness of the blessings that they have in Christ. So, call, so Paul is going from telling his readers, hey, you have these spiritual blessings in Christ, to now praying for them, that, that their eyes would be opened, that they would see exactly what it is that they have. And in particular, 
Paul is going to narrow down further this, this prayer uh, in our text this morning. And what he's doing is he's praying that the Ephesians would develop in their knowledge of God. And that's really the central point of this whole prayer today. Uh, and so we're going to look at what that means to have and to get the knowledge of God. And Paul is going to tell us that when it comes to this knowledge, there's three things you need to do. You need to ask for it, you need to learn about it, and then you need to act on it. But there's a promise that comes along with the knowledge of God, and, and that's that when we as a church actually do these things, when we ask God for knowledge about him, when we learn about him, and when we actually act and, and take steps of faith based upon it, then Paul says the outcome is that we'll experience God and we'll experience his power more and more. Okay, so let's dig into the text and, and see uh, what Paul is going to tell us today. So as Shar read, uh, Paul starts off this section of Ephesians by saying, for this reason. Um, and now when you pick up in the middle of a, of a thought like we're doing this morning, you have to go back and figure out, okay, what reason is Paul referring? Uh, thankfully, we don't have to go back very far because it's actually in verse 13 where he says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, so what Paul is saying is, is, look, I know that you guys are really followers of Jesus over in Ephesus. I know you believe, I know you have the Holy Spirit, and I know that because I can see the love for one another that you have. And so that's why he's able to say in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, and I remember you in my prayers. So what he's doing, he's really commending them for their faith. He's encouraging them with his words here. Um, he's excited for them. He's, he's proud of them, of where they are in their faith. And he wants them to continue growing in it. And so he prays on their behalf. And he prays for them regularly. He prays for them continually. And so the rest of the section we're going to look at today uh, contains the contents of this regular and repeated prayer. And so it, it's important to know this isn't just something that Paul is just writing down on a piece of papyrus and then kind of like going about his day. No, he's saying, look, guys, these are the kinds of things that I am praying for you about every single day. This is the kind uh, of love and knowledge and power that I want you to see, and I'm praying for you on your behalf. And so the very first thing he prays in verse 17 as his prayer starts, uh, it really sets the stage for the rest of the prayer. Uh, it's the main point of what he's trying to get across. And he says, I pray that the, law, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay, so this is paramount for Paul, this idea of the knowledge of God. Uh, and the rest of the, of the prayer kind of fleshes this idea out, and we'll take a look at it as we go. But I want to focus in on this idea of, of knowledge for, for just a second. Um, because here in the United States, and this has been true for, uh, for a while, it's been true as, lo as long as I've been around, which is getting longer every day, uh, there's, this, there's a strain of thought that, that sometimes um, crops its head up and sometimes makes an appearance. It's not necessarily everywhere, but it does happen, and it's something that we need to be aware of. And the name of the strain of thought is something called anti-intellectualism. All right, I know, $5 word, I know. But at its root, it's this idea that acquiring too much knowledge is a bad thing when it comes to faith. Um, and it comes in different forms. So just to give you an example, I grew up in a small town in the Midwest, and I remember hearing people say things like, oh, well, uh, that 
whatever, that truth that's in the Bible, that means God said it, that means it's true, end of story. Like, okay, well, uh, I do believe the Bible is 100% true, I do believe it's 100% the Word of God, but that statement is not a very good justification as to why. It's not a very good argument. Um, or you'll find questions where asking, que- or find churches where asking questions is discouraged. Uh, there's the received orthodoxy, right? There's, okay, well, we at this church believe these things, and you can't ask any questions. You just have to accept it blindly, and that's it. And if you start asking questions, you're often seen as a threat. Now, again, I do hold to the core tenets of the Christian faith, and they are critically important to get right. And yes, there's often a time and place for questions, and then there's a time and place to maybe ask the question later. I get that. And there's good motives for asking questions, and there's bad motives for asking questions. I get all of that stuff. But what I do know is that establishing a culture where you don't have dialogue and where questions aren't allowed to be asked, like that's, that's not a great strategy for growing in your faith. Uh, for a more personal example, even than those two, uh, so I grew up in Kansas, and then for seminary, I went to Denver Seminary, Denver, Colorado, and I remember when I was moving to Denver, I, I had some family members who were concerned that if I went off to, to Denver and went to Denver Seminary, I would come back and I would become a liberal, if you can believe that. I, I don't know like, what they were thinking. Like If I went to go to seminary, like, all of a sudden all of my theological beliefs would change overnight. Uh, it didn't happen, but I guess, I guess that's what they thought. And I also remember uh, when I went to college, my freshman year, my roommate... He actually told me that there was people in his church that said, hey, we don't think you should go get a college degree because you don't need it. And they would argue, well, you've got the Bible and you've got the Holy Spirit, so that's all you need, right? Okay, well, uh, their idea was, in other words, if you are going to be a pastor like he was going to be, then having that education would actually harm you and make you a worse pastor. So again, these are all things that I've personally experienced um, in my, you know, growing up in the faith. And on the surface, it seems like there are actually Bible verses that back this up. Uh, one example would be in 1 Corinthians 8.1. So here is Paul again. And he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Okay. Paul again, 1 Timothy 6.20, he says, avoid profane chatter and absurdities of so-called knowledge. Well, okay, it's not painting knowledge in a very good light. And then Colossians 2.8, again Paul Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking. Oh, I took philosophy in college. This is a problem, right? So you read verses like this, uh, and and you might see, okay, well, maybe this is why people say you don't need knowledge or, or it's enough just to have the Spirit. But I would argue, and I think Paul would argue too, especially here to the Ephesians, that this is really a case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So the problem with anti-intellectualism, this idea that you don't need knowledge of God as far as your faith life goes, is that it ignores the other side of the coin, where there are, in fact, many scriptures that do talk about the great need for knowledge. So here's some verses. Proverbs 18.15 says, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Okay? So here's Peter, 2 Peter 1, 2. May grace and peace be lavished on you as you grow in the rich knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then again back to Paul and Colossians. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. 
Okay, so I've got some good knowledge. So the question is, what do we do here? Uh, when it comes to faith, we have these certain scriptures that, that say, oh, well, you need to stay away from knowledge because it's bad. And then you've got these other scriptures that seem to say, oh, well, you, actually, you need to go get knowledge because it's good. Okay, so what do we do with this? Seems like it doesn't make sense. There's a conflict. Well, what we need to do is we need to look at this idea of knowledge. Like, what is true knowledge? What does uh, that word really mean? And so specifically, back here in Ephesians verse 17, Paul says that this knowledge is a knowledge of him, that is, of the Father. And so Paul says, look, it's this kind of knowledge of the Father that the wise person seeks out, like it mentions in Proverbs. It's this knowledge of the Father that is rich, that can renew your mind. It's this knowledge that you should seek more than anything because it's worth more than anything. So when we think about this knowledge, this knowledge of God, we need to know that it comes with a couple of characteristics that kind of further flesh this idea out. And the first thing is that the true knowledge of God is experiential. Okay, what do I mean by that? So the New Testament makes it clear that basic knowledge about God, just knowing some things about God, uh, is actually kind of useless. It's kind of odd, but that's what it says. So in the book of James, for example, it spells out that uh, even the demons have basic and accurate knowledge about God. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Oh, man. So what this verse is showing us is that just knowing things about God does not put you in elite company. Okay, you understand a few things about God. Great, well, so do the demons. Ouch, right? That's not a, not a good start. Um, look at it another way. You've got uh, people 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. They're actually physically seeing and interacting with the incarnate God through the man Jesus, right? They're, they're listening to him. Some of them are following him to certain degrees. They're watching him perform miracles. Some people are actually even healed by Jesus in the flesh, and yet, they don't believe him. They don't believe who he is. So knowledge, which just starts in the head and stays there, it just doesn't get the job done. It's just useless. It has to move to your heart to start doing any good. Okay, But once it does take root in your heart, once that knowledge about God goes from your head to your heart, now you start to see the value in it. The knowledge about God becomes knowledge of God. It becomes relational. It becomes something you experience. Because now you're getting to know God as a person, gets to know another person. And this is the kind of knowledge that starts to shape who you are and, and how you think. And so I think that's part of the reason why, why two people can react completely differently to the same scenario. One person might hear a sermon and, and walk out the door a completely changed individual while another person might listen to the same sermon in the same room and walk away with nothing. Or one person might go to seminary, like I did, and, and end up with uh, a crusty or a dry or academic faith. Or they might go to seminary and emerge with a more vibrant faith. It depends on whether that knowledge that they gained about God travels the 12 inches between their head and their heart. So you've got head knowledge, which is pretty much useless. You've got heart knowledge, which becomes better. But really, to get to the apex of the knowledge of God, it can't stop at your heart, as important as that is. So really, what starts in your head and moves to your heart ultimately needs to find expression in your hands, in your feet. 
In other words, once the knowledge of God gets so ingrained in who you are as a person that you can't help but show it in your actions towards yourself and towards others, okay, then you're really starting to discover what the knowledge of God is. Right? That's what the knowledge of God is all about. I was trying to think of a good example for this, and I, and I thought, oh, it's football season. I'll talk about the Seahawks. Uh, so, so I'm the kind of person, I'm the kind of uh, uh, fan, I guess, that, that you would categorize as someone who knows the Seahawks exist. I, I understand they're a football team. Um, I know they're local. I've even driven by the stadium a whole bunch of times. I've got the head knowledge of the Seahawks, right? Oh, I know all about the Seahawks. Um, well, actually, not really. I don't know any of the players. I don't watch the games. Uh, so ever since they traded Russell Wilson, I, don't, I have no idea what's going on. Um, it doesn't affect my life really in any way. So I'm just kind of like a guy with some head knowledge about the Seahawks. Probably shouldn't admit that in public, I guess. Now that I <laughs> say it out loud, it sounds worse. <laughs> but then there are people who make time each week to watch the Seahawks play. They probably have Seahawks gear. They probably wear it to work on Fridays. Um, maybe they even go to a game or two when the opportunity presents itself. And so they've, they've got that love for the Seahawks that's, that's gone from their head to their heart. That's, it's become, you know, a part of their identity. You can spot them. I remember when I, I went to, uh, I worked at Boeing for a long time, and on Fridays, you know, you knew who the Seahawks fans were because they had their Boeing shirts on, and you knew who the really diehard ones were when they had the players' jerseys who retired like 20 years ago. <laughs> because, like, okay, they've been following a long time. And then, on top of that, you've got the Seahawks fans that have the season tickets at the goal line or the 50-yard line, and they dress up in costumes and face paint, right? They bring giant signs to the game. Uh, they go absolutely nuts for three hours during the game. They're totally invested in the outcome of this game. In fact, some of these guys, I, I think they want the team to win more than the players want the team to win sometimes. It's like they're that committed. And so they're acting out of their love for the Seahawks, right, in, in, in these crazy ways. And so I think that kind of gets at this, this different kinds of, of knowledge and love and action that's going on. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, I, I think this is what he's talking about. He says, look, knowledge that stays in your head, quite frankly, it's useless. And actually, worst case scenario, it just makes you an arrogant person. Like, who wants to be that? But knowledge of God in the form of a, of a relationship with him in your heart, that finds its expression in your hands, in your feet, in your actions. Okay, that kind of knowledge builds people up because that kind of knowledge is love. And I think that kind of knowledge is indispensable. Uh, rather than saying, well, you don't need to know a bunch of stuff about God to follow him, I think actually you can't live the Christian life without growing in your knowledge of God. It would, like me, it would be like me claiming to be this rabid Seahawks fan, but I don't watch the games or or know anything about the players like that. It just doesn't make sense, right? Like the, it doesn't compute. It doesn't work like that. And so Paul knows this, which I think is why he makes this the central aspect of his prayer here uh, is the knowledge of God. It's this key piece of growing in a relationship with him. You know, to deny this would be like saying, well, I don't need to know my spouse. I mean, we got married. We live in the same house. Like that's, that's good enough, right? Okay, pro tip for the guys. The answer is No. That's not enough. No, when you become in a close relationship with someone, right, you, you get to know them better. That's just how it works. You know, and you can't separate your knowledge of another person from hanging out with them, getting to know them, talking to them, listening to them. And so just like if you hang out with your spouse, you talk to them, you get to know them better, the same happens with God. Hang out with God, spend time with him, you're going to get to know him better. 
And in fact, I think you could even say that the knowledge of God is so important that it, it actually sums up the whole of the Christian life. Uh, and I want to share a quote with Warren Wearsby. He kind of gets right to the heart of the matter where he says, To know God personally is salvation. To know him increasingly is sanctification. And to know him perfectly is glorification. So it really just kind of sums up the whole, the whole ball, of, ball of yarn there. And so you can see why Paul might think this was important, because knowing God is kind of the whole point of the Christian life. It's literally what we were made to do. All right, so Paul's main point in this prayer uh, is that the Ephesians would grow in their knowledge of God the Father. And then there's a few examples of this knowledge that Paul calls out. He says there's a couple different aspects and, uh, and applications of this love that he calls out that he, that he wants the church to grow in in Ephesus. And the first of those is going to deal with hope. So in verse 18, Paul says that he wants the Ephesians to have the hope uh, of their calling. Because this calling includes the sure promise of life with God as, as, as sons and daughters forever. And the reason the Ephesians can have such hope and why we can too is because their hope is based on facts of the Christian experience. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, in Numbers 23, we read this. This is where it says, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Okay, so all of us have grand designs at times. We all have these, these big plans that we put our hopes in. Oh, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to go do that. Uh, and yet often things don't work out like we intend, right? So for, for example, uh, a long time ago, I used to be a competitive runner, so I ran uh, track and cross country in college, and I also ran uh, competitively a couple years past college. And uh, my major goal after college, as far as running went, was to qualify for the Olympic Trials Marathon. Like, that's what I wanted to do. I knew I was nowhere near good enough to actually make the Olympic team. They only take three guys. I was not going to be one of them. And I knew that I wasn't even good enough to make the Olympic Trials uh, in, like, track and field because the standards were so much higher. But in the marathon, because they could have so many people on a course, they kind of lower the standards a little bit. And so the B standard, or the, the, the bottom line standards, you run the marathon, I thought, oh, that time is just possibly within my reach. So for years, I ran, and I raced, and I ran, and competed, and ran some more, and then I ran some more. Uh, and I actually did get pretty good. Uh, I ran some pretty good times, placed pretty high in a couple of races. I ran good enough times that if I told them to you, the, the response would be, gee, I can't even drive my car that fast, and I know... You would be because I've heard it a thousand times. So, you know, the, it was pretty decent times. Not world-beating, but decent. But despite my best efforts, I, I never made it to the Olympic Trials Marathon. Uh, I had a great plan. I worked my tail off, but I just could not put myself in a position to run that kind of time. Again, grand plan didn't work out for me. But God is different, right? When God says something, it's as good as done. As Numbers says, right, no one can say that God started something and didn't finish it. That is not something that God is capable of doing. God's designs are certain. I think about the creation story in Genesis, right? When God says, let there be light, he didn't get out his barbecue lighter and kind of, you know, click it a couple times until it started and then light. That's not what happened, right? He said, let there be light, and then what happened? 
There was light immediately, directly, no in between. When God says that he is going to do something, it will be done. And it's this knowledge of God that gives us hope. But the hope is also something that we get as we uh, understand and comprehend the revealed truth of God. So as Christians, we don't have this blind hope in God that's, that's not a part of it. We don't imagine that maybe God might work in my life, my life if he wants to, I guess. That's, that's not Christian faith. And our hope really isn't even based just on this belief that one day we'll die and go to heaven. Now that is a true statement. It's very important, and our hope is based in that on part. But that is not the whole deal. Hope comes into our lives when we recognize the great truths that are found in Scripture. Our hope springs from the very Word of God. And so when we say, hey, come join us as we read through the Bible this year, as we focus on that, like, it's because it's important, because that's where we get our hope from, the words of God. And hope is also all important in the Christian life. And I don't think we can function without hope. I don't think it's possible. Uh, one of my favorite quotes in Lord of the Rings relates to hope, in fact. Um, if you've read the books or, or seen the movie, um, you might remember there's a particular scene that happens right after the, the group of, uh, of our heroes escapes from Moria. You'll recall it's the part of the story where they have to run out of the mines and they have to, to cross the bridge of Casa Doom, right? And there's the big fiery Balrog. Oh, it's making me excited just thinking about it. <laughs> And of course, you remember, you know, Gandalf has to, has to fight out the Balrog, you know, you shall not pass, right? So cool. Oh, spoiler, yeah, dang it, sorry. And, the, you know, they're fighting, and the Balrog drags uh, Gandalf down into the pit, right? And, and, and Aragorn and, and the hobbits and everyone else has to, like, get out of there. So all that happens, everyone besides Gandalf is safely outside, and, and in the book, anyway, Aragorn looks back towards Moria, towards where they just came from, toward where Gandalf, uh, apparently at that point, fell to his death. And he says, Farewell, Gandalf. What hope have we without you? Right? So Gandalf is dead. We have no hope. This thing is not going to happen. But then he turns to the rest of his company, and he says, Then we must do without hope. Let us gird ourselves and weep no more. Come, we have a long road and much to do. God, what a stud he is, by the way. just want to say that. He's like my favorite hero. I, I want to be Aragorn when I grow up. I really do. Right? Oh, what, we're on a hopeless quest? Yeah, no problem. Let's do without hope. Let's keep going, guys. So Aragorn uh, might be awesome and manly, and he is, but that's not really the way that things work uh, in real life, is it? Right? That's why it's fantasy. We're not Aragorn, at least I'm not. Uh, we're regular people. We need hope. I don't have the sword of Elendil to carry me on. I need actual hope. Um, and it's only through hope that we have the strength to move forward in our faith. And it's really only through hope that we can walk through sorrow and that we can walk through pain. And it's only through hope that we can endure as we follow Christ. Uh, but thankfully, we aren't in the position of Aragorn. We don't have to do without hope. We always have hope if we have the knowledge of God. Okay, so the knowledge of God has to do with, with the hope of our calling. The next thing that Paul prays is that the Ephesians might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, now this little bit is interesting because the Greek here can actually be translated in two different ways. You can either translate it and say that we, the people of God, the church, we are God's inheritance, 
Or you can translate it as God, as we as God's people find our inheritance in God. So either we are God's inheritance or God is our inheritance. Uh, now, in this particular case, we've got a situation that one of my former seminary professors calls a both-and, um, where whichever way you understand the Greek text, you're, you're, you're kind of right, because both of those statements are true. So on the one hand, people of God are often described as, as God's inheritance. Uh, in Deuteronomy, for example, Moses is praying to the Lord on behalf of the people of Israel, and he says, God, these are your people, your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. And in 2 Samuel, King David calls Israel the Lord's inheritance. So there's definitely this idea in Scripture that God views his people, you and me, as something of great value. And this inheritance that, that, that's us is valuable to God because he sent his son to die for us. That, that, was a, that was a great expense on his part. He paid dearly with the death of his son so that we could be able to access him. And so Paul, fittingly here, speaks of the riches of his glorious inheritance. Just like an earthly king is going to value treasuries full of silver and gold, God values us, his people, as his wealth and honor. But on the other hand, we also have an inheritance in God. As believers, we have inherited eternal life, right? We don't have to succumb to the whims of some impersonal fate. We don't have to wonder if God is with us from day to day. We don't have to fret over our eternal destination. Like, that's secure. And we as Christians are unique in that when you truly know God, you have this special quality to your life that you can't find anywhere else. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians where he says that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. And if you spend time with people who both aren't yet following Jesus and then, and then go spend some time with people who are following Jesus, you know what I mean. There's this difference between, between two groups of people like that. There is peace, there's joy, there's love, there's kindness, there's faithfulness on display in the lives of believers in a way that you just will not find among those who do not yet know Christ. That's the aroma of Christ. And that's our inheritance. It's eternal life spent in a loving relationship with the God of the universe. And by the way, I want to make something real clear here. Uh, in case you didn't know, eternal life does not start when you die. Did you know that? Eternal life starts when you decide to follow Jesus. Right? So we, if you follow Jesus, you are living an eternal life right this second. You have access to this inheritance right now. Okay, so to recap so far, Paul is laying out a prayer for the Ephesians. It's this prayer he prays on a regular and continual basis, and he's praying that they might grow in their knowledge of God and the benefits of that knowledge. Uh, that's, that's hope. It's a mutual inheritance for both God and, and for us. And then in verse 19, he, he starts kind of wrapping up his prayer, and he rounds it out by bringing in this third aspect of the knowledge of God that he wants the Ephesians to experience, and that's the power of God. And Paul really, really, really wants to get across how powerfully powerful the power of God really is. And in fact, in verse 19 alone, uh, he uses five different Greek words that are all synonyms for the word power in English. You can throw that up on the screen. There you go. So it's not important that you know, you know how to pronounce them or what they are, but the point is, he basically got out his thesaurus or whatever they used 2,000 years ago. He's flipping through power, power, power. Okay, 
He's basically using almost every single Greek word he can come up with to describe this power. He, in fact, I don't even think he left any of them out. You know, if he was writing today in the 21st century and he's using a Microsoft Word, he probably would have like highlighted this section uh, in verse 19. He probably would have underlined it, bold text, maybe some, uh, I don't know, some flashing lights. I don't know what he would have done. Like, that's what he was trying to get across. Of course, he didn't have MS Word, so this is the, the way that they would do it back then, is by repetition and, and reinforcement. So verse 19, he's really driving this point home that God is powerfully, 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 powerfully powerful. Right? That's how you could translate that. And then to drive it home even further, in verse 20, he says, let me tell you about the most powerfully powerful example of the power of God. And that is the power that God used in the resurrection and ascension of his son. Okay, now when I think about power, uh, here, here's what I think about. So when I was a kid, I really, really, really liked the World's Strongest Man competition. Anybody else with me on that one? I mean, these guys were total studs. Yeah. Uh, you'd watch these guys and they would like, you know, lift cars and run obstacle courses with, with them or they would like, you know, bench press a log. It was, it was insane. These guys are just like living uh, examples of, of the Incredible Hulk. You know, and this, to me, it's, especially as a kid, you know, 120 pounds soaking wet, you know, skinnier than I am now. Like that was power, right? Wow, those guys are powerful. Or if we're talking about things other than like physical power, you know, now I would think about like the titans of industry, your, your Jeff Bezos's and your Elon Musk's, right? They have, they have teams and teams of people to do whatever they, they bid. They have billions of dollars at their disposal. They're in charge of entire companies. I mean, think about it. Jeff, Jeff Bezos, he picks up the phone. He says, hey, I want to ride a rocket into space. He hangs up. The, and it happens. Like, people do that. Yeah, it doesn't work for me, okay? I don't have that kind of power. I tried. NASA was not happy. Okay, it's probably not that simple to just pick up the phone, but the, the point is Jeff Bezos has access to wealth and power that I can't even begin to dream about. But Paul would say, oh, oh no, 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 that is not power, okay? Lifting a heavy rock? Yeah, whatever, that's nothing. Oh, you want to ride a rocket into space? Yeah, that's, that's child's play, dude, come on, like get real. He says, you want to talk about power, try bringing someone back from the dead. Right? And then, try giving that person authority over the entire universe. Okay? That's some heavy-duty power right there. That's what real power looks like. So that's why he says in verse 20, Look, God's power is on full display when he raised Christ from the dead and when he seated him at his right hand. And then in verse 21, he goes on, he says that, he put Christ, that God put Christ far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, above every name that is named. So now it's one thing to take note of is, is this phrase that he uses, uh, the rule and authority and power and dominion, and that's, that definitely kind of feels like something that came from the Bible, right? It's not like words we normally use in, in day-to-day conversation. Um, and if you're not, again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it just, you would not come across this phrase like in our modern parlance. But for Paul's readers, this is actually a phrase in terms that they would have known quite well. And that actually would hold true for both the Jewish readers and the Gentile readers at that time. Because those are the terms that both groups used to, retur- to refer to the spiritual powers of the age. Uh, we have the words angel and demon, and those are kind of the two that we use. 
Uh, but people at that time used words like rulers, authority, powers, dominions to speak about them. Uh, and I believe in the first sermon series on Ephesians, James went into a bunch of detail about what that actually looked like and, and, and what it was like to live there. So if you haven't seen that, I, I highly recommend going back and, and watching that to get this idea. But what Paul is doing is he's directly addressing this idea that there are, more, that there are powerful spiritual beings in the world, and that's something his readers would have agreed with 100%. Yet God is vastly more powerful even than they are. And then he goes even further and he says, look, this powerfully powerful power of God, right? The power that's more powerful than all the other powers. Do you get the idea of power here? Is made available to us through Christ himself. And that's the conclusion of his prayer. He tells the Ephesians that God's power is now on display to the world through his church. And it's by, by this power that the church fills the earth with the proclamation of the gospel. Or if you think of it another way, it's really God's power that enables us to fulfill our mission as a church. Uh, you've heard James say over and over again, uh, our goal as a church is, is to live and to love like Jesus. And what Paul is making it clear that, you know what, we have access to the power of God to make that happen. So that is not just a slogan. That is something that can become a reality for us. And so the question becomes, how do we tap into this power? Paul says that through Christ, the church has access to the literal power of God to fulfill our mission. And okay, that's a cool idea. It makes for good theology, maybe even gets us revved up a little. But the question is, how do we apply it? What do we do? What do we take away from this? And so if you remember from the beginning of the sermon, I said that Paul's big idea here is that you won't grow in the knowledge of God unless you ask, learn, and do. But when we do these things, when we ask and learn and do, then we start to experience it. We start to experience God's power. And so we find that if you want to acquire and use God's power to live and love like Jesus, you've got at least three ways to do it. First, it comes through intercessory prayer. Uh, and this is actually the example that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 1. The whole section that we've been looking at today is an intercessory prayer. And in fact, for Paul... Uh, he, he actually believed that praying on behalf of others was like the most important and principal means of accessing God's power. Because he believed that God actually listens to us when we pray and that he responds on the behalf of his people and that prayer makes a difference. And I would say yes, 100% true. And that's important to note here that, that what Paul is saying is, is not just you know, some general prayer for blessing. Uh, you know, dear Lord, so-and-so broke their, broke their ankle, please be with them. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for someone who's got a broken ankle. It's good to do that. But when we're talking about accessing the knowledge of God and the power that it contains, this is a very specific prayer. So Paul views prayer for others as this critical means of enabling them to grow in the faith. And so if you want to apply this today, a really simple way to do that is to just pray this for someone else. You can pray for Northview that we might know God more and experience his power. Uh, next time you meet in your life group, take some time, pray for one another for the power to grow in your faith. You can even take Paul's entire prayer here and just repeat it verbatim to God on behalf of the church. That's something you're allowed to do. I give you the okay. You can do that. So intercessory prayer, praying for someone else, asking God to give power to his church makes a difference. Second, if you want to grow in the awareness of God and his power, spend time with him in his word. 
right? We talked about this. This is a huge part of getting to know someone and, and is, is listening to them, engaging in conversation with them. Well, we don't have to wonder what God says because he gave us his word. And if we neglect it, we neglect this means of access to getting to know God better. And third, if you really want to grow in the knowledge of God and become deeply aware of his power, here's what I challenge you to do. Take a step out in faith. A few weeks ago, I gave an update about myself and my family. And many of you probably know that in 2021, uh, we tried to plant a church. And unfortunately, that didn't happen at that time. We weren't able to make it uh, work. Uh, I'm here to tell you, that was a difficult endeavor. That was the hardest thing that I've ever done. And I've never stepped out in faith like I did in 2021. Uh, We put everything on the line. Um, I opened up myself and my family to all kinds of spiritual attacks. Uh, There was all kinds of financial, uh, just not knowing what was going to happen. There was all kinds of uncertainty. Uh, It was just really, really difficult to step out in faith like that. And you might say, well, John, that sounds terrible. Why on earth would I take a step out in faith if that's what I'm going to get? And I would say, yeah, it wasn't, you know, the most fun thing I've ever done. But, but here's the deal. Here's the other half of that story. I came to know the power of God in ways that you cannot know in any other way. Okay, we saw God's hand of provision on us in, in just absolutely crazy ways. And it's still happening, by the way. This stuff just blows me away. Like, okay, God, you're going to provide that way? All right, cool. You know, I'm not worthy, but okay. And I see how God has shaped me and changed me throughout the process. And I have got a long way to go before I'm perfect. I am reminded of that every single day. But I did see the power of God transform my heart and my wife's heart up close and personal. Okay? I experienced God giving me strength to carry on. And that is not a metaphor. That is not a simile. That is the literal 100% truth. I can tell you the day and the hour that that happened. And so for all that, to get to know God in that way, you know what? I would do it all again in a heartbeat, 100% of the time, seven days out of seven. So I don't know which one of these might be the thing you need to take away from here today. Uh, Maybe you feel the Spirit nudging you towards praying for someone, that they would experience God's uh, power. Maybe you need to pick up your Bible and start to read it with the expectation that God wants to have a conversation with you. Maybe you need to step out in faith. I'm not saying everybody has to plan a church, but there might be a conversation you need to have. There might be uh, a decision you need to make. There might be a job change you need to do. I don't know what it is. But as the band comes up and as we start to get ready for our final song, uh, just take some time. Listen to the Spirit. Allow Him to reveal to you where you need to make a change, where you need to reach out for God's power so that you can live and love more like Jesus. And I just want to end with an illustration by a man named Alexander McLaren. He was a Scottish minister who lived in the 1800s. Uh, dude wrote a lot of great stuff. But he wrote something about this particular passage in Ephesians that I just love what he says. And uh, this is a great way to end this morning. He says this, Surely God did not endue us with his power that we might fling it away on trivial and transient things. We are far too short-sighted. And our fault is not that we don't hope, but that we hope for such small things. We're like the old mariners who had no compass, no sextant, and were obliged to creep timidly along the coasts and steer from headland to headland. But instead, we ought to launch boldly out into the middle of the ocean, knowing that we have before us a God who cannot leave us astray. 
So friends, we have the power of God to live out and proclaim the gospel. And it's right at our fingertips. It's right there. We don't have to sail our ships close to shore. We can launch out into the deepest of seas. Okay, we can live out our calling as a church to become more like Christ. We can impact our community with the gospel in amazing ways, not through our strength, but through God's power. The only question is, will we do it?